I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hemoparasites. As the name implies, we're talking about blood parasites. No, not blood-sucking parasites, but tiny, microscopic parasites that actually live in the bloodstream or even inside red blood cells. There are many different types of hemoparasites, but probably the most famous or infamous hemoparasite is malaria. Malaria is a disease caused by hemoparasites of the genus Plasmodium. The ancient Romans believed the disease was spread through the air, so they named it malaria, which basically translates to bad air. But now we know malaria is not spread through airborne transmission, but is actually spread through mosquitoes and a few other blood-sucking insects. Malaria is one of the most severe public health problems worldwide. It's a leading cause of death and disease in many developing countries in tropical and subtropical regions. But what you may not know is that malaria is also found in many species of wildlife, including birds, reptiles, and mammals. The Plasmodium genus is incredibly diverse, and each type of wildlife taxa have their very own species of Plasmodium, which are different than the Plasmodium species that cause human malaria, unless we're talking about primates, but more on that later. And the crazy thing is we're just starting to scratch the surface of this problem in wildlife. And the more places we look, the more species we sample, the more new species of malaria parasites we're discovering. And we're not just finding it in tropical regions. For example, avian malaria has been found across the globe, basically everywhere except Antarctica. It's all fascinating, but also frankly overwhelming to think about. And to study these microscopic, blood-borne malarial parasites in wildlife, you need to be someone who's equal parts, rugged field biologist, parasitologist, and lab nerd geneticist. Thankfully, I happen to know one of these rare unicorns of wildlife health research, and her name is Dr. Ellen Martinson. Dr. Martinson earned her PhD in biology from the University of Vermont and conducted her postdoctoral research at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute's Center for Conservation Genomics. Through the integration of field, microscopy, and genetic methods, She aims to better understand the complex associations between the malarial parasites, their wildlife hosts, and mosquito vectors. The goal of her work is a holistic understanding of malarial parasite transmission in the context of a rapidly changing world. She's currently based out of Vermont, where she lives with her husband, two children, a pack of dogs, and a flock of chickens. So here she is, the heroine of hemoparasites, the maven of malaria, the one and only Dr. Ellen Martinson. In my early 20s, I worked on a conservation-based project in Hawaii, and I was doing field work with an endangered honeycreeper species there. This group of endemic bird species, the honeycreepers, that had lived in isolation from pathogens for a long, long, long time. So then we brought over the mosquito, we brought over introduced bird species carrying plasmodium parasites, and those parasites jumped into the native endemic Hawaiian honeycreepers. And has resulted in the endangerment and extinction of a majority of those endemic honeycreeper species. So only 18 of the 56 endemic Hawaiian honeycreeper species still exist. 
Um, and malaria parasites have been one of the, the main factors in causing their species, their population decline and extinction. So that started my interest in the malaria parasites. And then as a graduate student at the University of Vermont, I, I hooked up with a bird bander who was, who was doing field work with, with birds and setting up mist nets and catching birds and taking blood samples. And I set up a mist net at my, the bird feeder in my backyard and I caught some chickadees and cardinals and titmice and woodpeckers. And I took just a, a drop of blood and, and, and made a, a thin microscope smear and looked at, an, looked at the smears under the light microscope and I saw malaria parasites in these birds in my backyard. So that, that sparked my interest and um, got me hooked on studying the malaria parasites of birds. Wow, I love that you did that in your backyard. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it all happened. And when I, when I talked to people about that project, I found that over 40% of birds in Vermont harbor infection by malaria parasites. So I tell people when you look out your window and you see birds at your bird feeder, there's a good chance that one or more of those birds is infected with malaria parasites. Great. Now every time I watch the birds on my feeder, I'm just going to be worrying about all of them and thinking about hemoparasites. But Ellen brings up a good point, which is that we can't know the true prevalence or get a better understanding of hemoparasite infections in wildlife if we're not actually looking for them. Yeah, I like to tell I like to tell people that taking taking a blood sample from a vertebrate host, whether it be a chickadee or a squirrel or a deer, when you look at the animal on the outside, you see it's kind of like looking at a book. But when you take a blood sample from an animal and you're able to examine for different health measures, whether it be white blood cell counts or red blood cell counts, or look at different pathogens, whether it be malaria parasites or other things like trypanosomes or bacteria viruses, it's kind of like opening the book. And while we've been talking mostly about avian malaria so far, these plasmodium hemoparasites aren't just an avian problem. What most folks don't know about malaria is that that genus Plasmodium is amazingly diverse and widespread and common. So if we look at other host taxa, not just humans, but other great ape species, we see that they have their own Plasmodium species. And then if we look at other primates and rodents, bats, lizards, birds, and ungulate mammals, we see they all have their own Plasmodium parasites as well. And if we count the number of plasmodium species in all these vertebrate groups worldwide, we see that there's thousands and thousands of species of plasmodium parasites, and they're on every continent except for Antarctica. So they're perhaps one of the most successful, diverse, and widespread parasite groups of vertebrate animals worldwide. Okay, so there's all these different types of plasmodium that cause malaria in all these different wildlife species. Is there any risk of zoonosis? Like, is there any risk that malaria could be transmitted from an animal to a person or even the other way around? So we know in South America that we've brought malaria parasites over and they've jumped into native primate species there. And we know in Africa that that plasmodium species I talked about before, plasmodium falciparum, that's responsible for over 98% of malaria, par malaria infections in humans. That parasite species is a result of a host switch from from gorillas. And that probably explains why that malaria parasite species is the most virulent and dead, deadly. So when people think of um, mortality from malaria, it's due to the species Plasmodium falciparum. And we also know from studies in Southeast Asia 
that we have the host switching of malaria parasites from macaques into humans. So there is the host switching from, from closely related primate species into humans, as well as the host switching from humans into primate species. Quick aside here, because now this begs the question, how the hell do we know all this? How do you actually detect hemoparasites in a human or an animal? Well, since these parasites live in the blood, you need a blood sample. And there are basically two ways to screen for hemoparasites in a blood sample. The first method is the good old-fashioned blood smear and microscopy, putting a drop of blood on a microscope slide and smearing it out into a thin film so you can look at individual blood cells, and then looking at it under the microscope. And you're just trying to visually identify these parasites on the slide. This might sound easy, but it's not. And I can say from experience with my own failed attempts that these little jerks can be really hard to find and identify. And to make things even more annoyingly complicated, the malaria parasite goes through multiple developmental life stages while in the blood. And each stage looks different. For example, depending on the life stage and the species of the malaria, they can look ring-shaped, round, banana-shaped, or even amoeboid, which just means they basically look like an amorphous blob. Great, that's super helpful. And even if you are an expert, like an Ellen Martinson level hemoparasite identifier, there's still the chance that you're going to miss them on a blood smear simply because they're not there. Sometimes the infection level is so low and there are so few parasites in the blood, there might not be any on the slide that you're looking at. Or the parasites might have left the circulating blood altogether and gone to hide out in the organs of the body but more on that in a minute. So obviously, just depending on microscopy and blood smears is not ideal. What other options do we have? Well, now we have molecular methods such as PCR, where we can detect the parasite's DNA in a blood sample. And these methods are way more sensitive and give us way more information. And this is what prompted Ellen to take the plunge into using these genetic methods for her own research. So I was actually at a bird meeting and I was on the elevator with somebody that I had done field work with, a mentor, and I, and I told him my problem that I, you know, I'm studying layer parasites, but I'm kind of, I, I had caution about like doing lab work because up until then I had only done field biology and worked on a number of bird projects across the country, you know, getting my hands dirty and catching birds in nets and studying how they where they where they nest and how many babies are born and all that stuff. But I remember that I remember that elevator ride and he said, you know what, Ellen, if you are able to open a cookbook and follow a recipe, you'll be able to do the molecular methods you need for this project. And so I went home from that bird beating thinking, I can do this. And so I did. So I learned all the lab methods. I didn't think I would be one to enjoy being in the lab, but it actually, I actually love being in the lab. So these newer molecular methods have really opened our eyes and given us a whole new perspective on just how many species of malarial parasites are out there. Based on different studies, for example, just in North America, there's over 200 species of plasmodium in birds. And then globally, we know that there's over 500 different species of plasmodium in birds. So the more people study the malaria parasites of birds using molecular methods, the more diversity we're finding. It's pretty amazing. And the, it's almost an exponential growth of number of plasmodium species that we discover based on the number of, of host species sampled. 
Okay, so now we're transitioning into the part of the episode where things start to get really crazy. Talking about host-parasite-vector interactions. Remember, these malarial parasites can't spread directly from animal to animal. They need an insect vector, usually a mosquito, to complete their life cycle and transmit from one host to another. I think I'm just going to leave it there and not go into all the greedy details of the life cycle of malaria. From trophozoites to schizons to gametocytes, etc. But if you want to satisfy your curiosity and also potentially give yourself a migraine, go ahead and Google Plasmodium Life Cycle and check out those flowcharts made by the CDC. Go ahead and rejoin us once you've recovered. So, so far we've just been talking about the parasites and the vertebrate hosts, but we haven't talked about the invertebrate host. So the mosquito is the vector host. It's responsible for transmitting or passing parasites between vertebrate hosts. So we there's dozens and dozens of mosquito vector species that transmit malaria parasites. It's interesting, if you follow infection, the course of infection in an individual animal, say a human or a bird, you can see that there's an acute phase where the parasite numbers in the vertebrate host are pretty high. That's usually when you first acquire your infection, so you're first bitten by an infected mosquito and your immune system is trying to, to battle an infection and and parasite numbers are high. If you sample a vertebrate host during that time and make a blood smear, there's a good chance that you'll see the parasites in the blood cells. But after that initial acute phase of infection, the body either completely eliminates the infection and so you don't have your malaria parasite infection anymore, or most often it brings it down to a level and where you have this latent phase of infection where the parasite's kind of just dormant in the tissues whether it be the liver or the kidney. And during that period of time, during that latent infection time, if you sample the vertebrate host and make a blood smear, you're not gonna see the parasites in the blood cells. So there's certain times of infection where you're, you're very unlikely to see the parasite. And in birds, this corresponds to the winter. So birds usually have a lifelong malaria parasite infection. And, but it makes sense for the parasites to hide out and go dormant in the tissues during the winter because you don't have the biting vectors out. So the, your ability to, to go from host to host is pretty nil. Okay. Just to recap, because that's kind of really cool and actually makes a lot of sense. If the goal of these parasites is to eventually get picked up by another mosquito so they can complete their life cycle and go on to infect more hosts, then they don't want to be floating around needlessly in the bloodstream because this is where they could get recognized and destroyed by the host immune system. So they don't want to be there unless there's an opportunity for them to actually be ingested by a mosquito. So instead, their strategy is they kind of go into witness protection and hide out inside the organs and tissues where they can more easily evade the immune system. And they hide out there until the mosquitoes are out buzzing around again. The mosquito part is really exciting after doing field work with birds, you know that it's really difficult to get permits. You have to get federal permits. You have to get state permits. You have to get land use permits. You've got to maintain your mist nets and it, you've got to wake up at the crack of dawn sometimes at 3 a.m. to get your field site by 4 a.m. to get your nets set up before the sun comes up. So it's actually a really difficult way to sample for parasites. But I was doing my postdoctoral work at the National Zoo through the Smithsonian Institution, and I started doing vector work 
which is amazing because you don't have to wake up early. You don't have to set up those mesnets. You don't need to handle the birds. Um, instead, you just hang up traps. And I use two different traps to sample mosquitoes. I used CDC light traps, which is just a simple trap with a light and a fan. And when the mosquitoes fly in, they're blown down into a, a cup. And then you go out and you you collect your cups and you you freeze your specimens and then you sort them under the dissection scope and identify them to species and from there in the lab i would take individual mosquitoes and only the females so it's only the female mosquitoes that take blood meals and i would sort them by species and identify them based on morphological characters and then i would dissect out the salivary glands in each mosquito so you gently tease apart the head from the thorax of the mosquito. And then I would take those salivary glands and put it in a tube and then do the DNA extraction and PCR screening methods I talked about previously to find infection. Okay, so that all sounds pretty crazy to me. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine you under a microscope actually dissecting salivary glands away from a mosquito. And I would imagine that that's not the easiest thing to do. It's definitely not the easiest thing to do, but it's it's fun. I I I'm partial to the microscope, as a, as you probably know. Um, so, and it, it working with mosquitoes actually opened my eyes to the the wonders of the insect realm. I'm, I mean, I have respect and appreciation for for insects, but I guess to really appreciate them, you should look at them under a dissection scope. They're pretty amazing little little creatures. And just recently, within the last 10 years, people have been sampling mosquitoes for malaria parasites. And they've been finding malaria parasites that they haven't yet sampled from vertebrate hosts. So sampling the mosquito vector is actually proving to be fruitful in discovery of pathogens that we haven't yet sampled from vertebrates. And this makes sense because we know that certain vertebrate groups, for example, if we just look at birds, we know that certain bird groups are difficult to catch. So most people are setting up mist nets and catching passerines or songbirds. Um, but there's a diversity of birds out there that you can't catch in mist nets, like herons, egrets, owls, um, things of, and birds of, of, of those groups. So sampling the vectors is actually a great way to get a, a, a better picture of the diversity of malaria parasites circulating in a host community. And of course... When we talk about mosquitoes, we have to talk about climate change. Yeah, so we I was involved in a study with a mosquito species in New Jersey that had just recently shown up in New Jersey in the 1960s. But traditionally, its distribution was South America and the southeastern U.S. And this mosquito species, Culex erraticus, is now, found, is now further expanding northward. So just two years ago, it was documented for the first time in southern Ontario. So this, and we know this mosquito species transmits malaria parasites of birds, as well as other pathogens, including human pathogens like West Nile virus and triple E. So we know that there's a number of mosquito species worldwide that are expanding their range northward due to climate change. And we know that they're bringing their pathogens with them. So on the topic of mosquitoes, this is where we segue into a really interesting story of how Ellen accidentally rediscovered malaria in white-tailed deer. And to tell this story, we need to go back to the year 1967. There was a study by the USDA in the 60s in Texas, and they were taking 
wild white-tailed deer into captivity and they were splenecticizing the deer. So basically, these researchers were surgically removing the spleens of these deer that they were studying. Sounds a little invasive, so why were they doing this? The spleen helps filter the blood and supports the immune system. So if you remove it, it makes it easier to detect any infections or pathogens that you're trying to study, which is exactly what happened here. And in one of those deer, in a single blood smear taken at day 10 post-splenectomy, they found some blood parasites that had never been seen before. And so they, they tucked the, that slide away. And that one slide from that one deer with the mystery parasites in its blood stayed tucked away on a shelf for years until they showed it to someone who actually knew what they were looking at. The main researcher shared it with the world's leading malaria parasite researcher, um, PCC Garnum. And Garnum looked at that blood smear and said, wow, these are malaria parasites. And he described a species of malaria parasite from the white-tailed deer. And that was published in 1980. And that was a big surprise because up until then, we did not know of any endemic malaria parasites in mammals in the new world. We knew that there were lots and lots of different plasmodium species in old world mammals. But as for new world mammals, there were no endemic malaria parasites. So that discovery of that, that mosquito, of that malaria parasite species in the white-tailed deer was a big surprise. And um, many thought it was a hoax, that it wasn't real. And after that, people looked in white-tailed deer for malaria parasites and they took blood smears, thousands and thousands of blood smears across the country and they couldn't find the parasites again. So because only that one researcher, PCC Garnum, saw those malarial parasites only on that one slide from that one spleenless deer, and no one else was able to find them again after that, a lot of people kind of just wrote it off as fake news. But now, fast forward several decades to the year 2016, and that's where Ellen enters the story. Um, but it wasn't until molecular methods came around that we rediscovered that plasmodium species is Plasmodium odocolii, and I actually um, accidentally discovered it by uh, sequencing a malaria parasite infection from a mosquito I sampled in Washington, D.C. And fortunately, that mosquito had this, had a really strange malaria parasite sequence. So it definitely wasn't bird malaria, and it grouped with the mammal malaria parasites, but it wasn't closely related to any of them. And this was by looking at the, the gene sequences and doing molecular work. And so fortunately, that mosquito that I isolated that strange sequence from, she was blooded. So she had an engorged abdomen. So I was able to sequence the vertebrate DNA in her abdomen and find out that she had fed upon a white-tailed deer. So I accidentally rediscovered Plasmodium coli, And I know I did because I actually borrowed that single smear from that splenexicized deer in Texas from the Natural History Museum in London. So that same single blood slide from that one deer in Texas in 1967 was still kicking around in a museum, and she was able to get her hands on it to confirm that it was this new malarial species she had found in the mosquito. Pretty cool. And then I was able to get some blood smears from deer from Virginia and screen them for, for malaria parasite infection using molecular methods, and I found that they were infected, and then I looked at the blood smears and I was able to see the parasites, but it took me hours and hours of scanning blood smears from those white-tailed deer to find the parasites. And the infection was so low, the infection level in the deer. There was, I found one infected red blood cell per 65,000 red blood cells. 
So if you're going to discover these things by light microscopy, you have to spend a lot of time and look at multiple smears from a single animal. And so molecular methods are, are way more accurate in, in, in finding infections and then also understanding what species they are. And so since then, we've rediscovered a number of plasmodium species in vertebrates worldwide, including different ungulate species in Africa and Asia. Another question I had is, are hemoparasites increasing or are we just getting better at detecting them? Is the prevalence of malaria parasites going up in these, in these species? It's going to take studies over long periods of time to answer that question. And there's been some ongoing studies in birds um, and obviously in humans uh, that show that in certain areas and certain regions, malaria parasite infection is going up over time. And with respect to vertebrate hosts at more northern latitudes, we know that some of them are showing signs of infection or showing malaria parasite infection for the first time, for example, with the common loon. Since Ellen brought up common loons, we're going to take a brief detour here because I wanted to talk to Alyssa Newhouse. Alyssa is one of Ellen's grad students at the University of Vermont, and she's just starting her master's degree studying malaria in common loons. So I'm just going to start off by saying that I'm pretty jealous of you that you get to work with Ellen as one of your graduate advisors at University of Vermont. And um, I was just curious, what what is it like working with her? And be honest now, keep in mind, we can always edit this out <laughs> if we need to. <laughs> but what's it like work, working with Ellen? Yeah, no, Ellen is a, a she's an amazing um, advisor. And I really... I came to like I came looking for an advisor not knowing that I wanted to do research with birds or malaria parasites and I was kind of debating between two different advisors and um, Ellen actually got me just super excited about her own project because she's so passionate about it and the first time that she told me about malaria parasites and deer and birds she was just so excited to share all the information. And yeah, she really opened up the door to this realm that I'm now in. Yeah, I love having her as an advisor. She's great. Good job. That was a test. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was totally going to tell her if you said anything negative. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to be looking at um, kind of the distribution and the prevalence of malaria parasites across the entire southern edge of the common loons breeding range. So it kind of spans from like Washington all over to um, New Hampshire and Maine and Massachusetts. And I also just have a, I have a ton of data and it, it spans about 10 years. So I can kind of follow how malaria parasites are moving over time and how maybe they're moving west or east or north. So I'm mainly working with data that's already been collected. Ellen and I are kind of collaborating with a bunch of different organizations throughout the country. So we actually haven't done any of the field work for the blood samples that we've gotten. We've all, or we've just kind of received them through the mail, basically. Um, just because field work with loons, capturing and banding and taking blood is really a really difficult process. And um, yeah, we're kind of leaving that to um, the organizations that are dedicated to doing that. You go out at like midnight when it's dark and you shine lights on the water. And as soon as you see a loon, you basically scoop it up with a net. Yeah, I, I feel like we could do an entire episode just talking about what goes on with, with actually capturing a, a loon from the wild. Okay, slight tangent here, but I had to ask her about this. 
I saw on her LinkedIn profile that a couple years ago, she actually worked in a medical examiner's office, not studying wildlife, but studying dead people. And um, at first it was shadowing, and then they kind of let us get our hands dirty, I guess, with autopsies. Wow. So you were you were actually in there assisting with these human yeah, autopsies. Yeah, it was very it was in a very interesting experience. I couldn't tell you exactly why I got into it, but um, I am glad I did it. And I'm not really I'm not squeamish. I have watched a couple of loon necropsies this past summer and I was fine. I think it's cool now. It does relate to what I'm doing now, just a little bit different. And finally I awkwardly ask Alyssa if she can help me get better at identifying hemoparasites under the microscope. Just curious if I could be an intern with you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I've only looked for parasites a couple times, and I was actually using one of those, um, I think it's just a dual microscope, and I was with Ellen. And so I was sitting there looking at the slide, and she would scan, and she would just pause whenever she saw anything that kind of um, stood out. Ellen is definitely an expert on it. Um, but one thing that is really cool when you're scanning for them, um, if you see something shiny, um, that's usually indicative that there's a malaria parasite because the malaria parasites, um, they, um, the like hemoglobin, hemoglobin, hemoglobin in your blood is toxic to them. So they actually, um, they like bundle it up and it turns into the shiny metal looking thing. So if you see something like that under the microscope, um, you can be pretty sure that you're looking at a malaria parasite. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah. Cool. I would definitely talk to Ellen more about that, though. I've only seen it maybe two or three times in the um, slides that we've scanned, but it is really cool, but also very difficult. Yeah. Pro tip there. I love it. Yeah. I know. And I think getting blood smears on a slide is just an art. And Ellen always says that you can tell if a vet student did it or if a biologist did it, because the vet students are usually very nice and thin and pretty. And then a biologist just kind of globs it on. So, <laughs> no offense to the biologists out there. <laughs> no, I'm not thinking. Yeah. Now, let's jump back and wrap things up with Ellen. And while I'd hope to end this interview by asking Ellen something really insightful or intelligent, instead, I went completely off the rails and ended up asking her a really dumb question, which was So, you've spent a lot of time banding birds. Have you ever caught a human? in your misnet. That would be really funny to catch a human. I've, I've had people um, find my misnets. Usually it's birders. It's people who are out at the crack of dawn. It's usually birders. Um, so I've had birders standing by looking at birds in, in my misnets and, and, um, but I've never actually caught, I caught a human in a misnet, but that would be really funny. <laughs> I know. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we have the permits to actually sample a human being. So we, <laughs> that would have to be just a catch and release. In my defense, a few years ago, some bat biologists told me a story about how one day some guy on a mountain bike ignored the trail closings and came riding down right where they were setting up their bat mist nets. And the guy ended up just barreling right into their net and getting all caught and it was this huge debacle. So yes, it's a thing that can happen. Before we sign off here is there anything or i should say if you could leave our listeners with with one quote or one important idea if they remember nothing else from the podcast today what would that be what would you want listeners to remember i guess i would want folks to remember just to get out in nature spend 
lots of time out in nature. The more time you're out there, the more things you'll notice, the more things you'll observe, and also the more things you'll find. So when you are, when you go out and you're turning over stones, you're likely to make some discoveries. It's pretty pretty amazing um, if your eyes are are in tune to, to seeing these things. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.